0: Following message is from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, go to trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again. So glad that you're here with us, especially if you're a guest this morning. If you were here last week, you know that we started a new series in the Old Testament book of Jonah, and we're going to be looking at this short book through the month of May. It's one of the 12 minor prophets that's found towards the end of your Old Testament, and Jonah reads a lot like a historical narrative. It's a book that was likely written autobiographically by Jonah himself once he came to his senses after this whole ordeal was over, and he gives us glimpses and pictures into what he experienced as he experienced himself fleeing from God's presence. You might remember Jonah from Sunday School. It's memorable because a giant fish swallows Jonah, which is actually the passage that we're going to be looking at today. But it's important to realize that this short book isn't primarily about a giant fish. It's actually a relatively small detail when considering the entire book. In fact, it only takes up about 20% of the book's real estate. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. What this small book is really about, though, is God's compassion for his creatures. It's about God's desire for all people to come to know him. It's about God's mission of reaching and renewing the entire world. This book is really about God's pursuit of those who don't deserve to be pursued. When our kids were little, one of our favorite books to read them was The Runaway Bunny. Maybe some of you have read this book before. Some of you might remember it. It's about a little bunny that wants to run away from his mother rabbit. And throughout the book, the little bunny threatens to run away from his mom saying, I'm going to become a fish and I'm going to swim away from you. Or he says, I'm going to become a rock high on top of a mountain so that I can get away from you. Or I'm going to become a bird and I'm going to fly away from you. And every time the bunny threatens to turn into something else and run away, the mother rabbit promises never to give up on her bunny, saying things like, if you become a fish, I'll become a fisherman and I'll fish for you. If you become a rock on a mountain, I'll become a mountain climber and I'll climb to where you are. If you become a bird, I'll be a tree that you fly home to. And it's a great little book written in 1942 that's withstood the test of time. And it's so great because it's comforting for our kids to know that if they ran away, their parents who love them so much would come after them. It's comforting for kids to realize that. And I think that it's also comforting for us to realize that as well. No matter how old we get, we haven't gotten over that desire that if we run, there's always someone out there that loves us so much that we won't go unpursued. That if you run, there's someone who's going to come after you. Last week, we saw Jonah on the run. He was running from God's call in his life. He was fleeing God's presence, it says in chapter 1. And this week, we get to see that God does not let Jonah go unpursued. We see from our passage this morning that God is running after Jonah. Jonah. And it's encouraging for us because through Jonah, we see that God won't allow us to go unpursued. We see that we have a God who runs after us. So to see that, you follow along as I read from Jonah, picking up at the very end of chapter one, verse 17. It's printed for you in your bulletin this morning. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. I wonder how many of you can remember back to your time in high school when you began driving a car for the first time. At the time you were nearing the age of 16, you likely didn't think about how dangerous it was to get behind the wheel of a car. It's just not something that normal 16-year-olds consider much. And while you didn't consider as a 16-year-old the danger and risk of getting behind a car, the adults in your life likely did. In fact, they were so concerned that you might remember they took pretty drastic steps to impress upon you the danger and the responsibility of driving a car. I remember when I was in high school, they had a grade-wide assembly where all the 10th graders would gather in the auditorium to spend an hour learning about the potential dangers and risks of driving a car. And normally they would bring in speakers that did a pretty good job of instilling an appropriate fear and respect in us for what it means to drive. They would talk about the importance of wearing seatbelts, driving defensively, never drinking alcohol while you were driving. And along with the assembly, I also remember them bringing a vehicle that, been, that had been in a major auto accident, and they would put that car right next to the doors that all of the students would enter and exit through the entire week. And it was a pretty graphic picture of what could happen if we forget the importance of what it means to drive a car. It was a visual message that was intended to help us by way of a negative example. And in much the same way, what we just read this morning is meant to be a visual message that's intended to stand as a warning by way of negative example. Remember last week in chapter one, we saw God call Jonah in a certain direction and Jonah receives this call and he decides that he's gonna move in the complete opposite direction of where God called him. It's described as Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah finds himself or he doesn't find himself. He actively hops on a boat to Tarshish and God sends a massive storm upon him, which leads the sailors to throw Jonah overboard in order to save themselves. And this morning, we see that it leads to Jonah being in the intestinal tract of a giant fish. And I don't know how to explain that. But in verse 17, we see that a great fish, he swallowed Jonah, and he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and it would have been dark, he would have been alone, he was likely scared, he felt trapped to say the least. In verse 1, we see him cry out from what Jonah describes as the belly of Sheol. Now, sheol is a Hebrew word that refers to the place of death or a place of deep darkness. And it's here in this place of distress, this place of darkness, that Jonah finds himself. And the book of Jonah isn't meant to be an allegory. We need to understand that. But we often figuratively, I think, find ourselves in the same place Jonah does when we run from God. When we flee his presence, like Jonah, we often find ourselves in places of darkness. We often find ourselves in places where we feel absolutely alone, places where we're scared, places where we feel trapped. Maybe it's the belly of alcohol dependence for you. Maybe for some of you, it's the belly of pornography addiction. Maybe for some of you, it's the belly of anger that is destroying your family. For others, it's the belly of crippling comparison to other moms and other families. For others, it's the belly of emotional detachment and apathy. For others, it might be the belly of unfaithfulness to your spouse that's still a complete secret. When we find ourselves being overwhelmed, when we find ourselves in proverbial darkness, when we find ourselves feeling like the deep surrounds us, it's important to ask two questions. How did I get here? And how do I get out of here? How did I get here and how do I get out of here? Those are the two questions we're gonna ask of Jonah in our passage this morning. And hopefully he'll stand as an example that we can all find ourselves in to some degree. So first, how did I get here? It's important to understand exactly how Jonah got to be in the belly of the fish. We saw it last week as we looked at chapter one, Jonah received a call from God to arise. Arise and go to Nineveh and preach God's love and compassion to that great city. And since Jonah hated the Ninevites, he decided that he wasn't going to do it. He's not going to do that. Instead, he arises and he goes. And what we see him do is go in the exact opposite direction of where God commands. In fact, he hops on the first ship he can find to the complete opposite end of the world, somewhere probably near Spain called Tarshish. And Jonah's refusal to obey God's command is described with a word that's used three times in chapter one, and the word is down. Jonah goes down, 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 further into defiance, further into darkness, because he disobeyed God's command in his life. And Jonah's an example for us that shows defiance and disobedience in life always leads to messes. It always leads to message. It's important to understand something that Jonah wants to teach us, and it's this, that our choices have consequences. Our choices have consequences. It's Jonah's choices that have taken him down into this deep darkness, that have taken him down, 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 that have him surrounded by these deep waters. It was Johnny Cash who sang, You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. That song could have been written by Jonah. Maybe it could have been written by some of you. Now, it's true that we live in a fallen, sinful world. We live in a world where things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And because of that, you have had things done to you, and you have experienced things that are sad and evil and dysfunctional. But it's also true that you and I have agency. We have the power of choice as humans made in God's image. And we very often experience sad and evil and dysfunctional things because of the choices we have made. We see this at play with parenting. Think about it. There are certain difficulties and stresses and flaws that my kids are going to have to endure simply because I'm the one raising them. Because I make mistakes. They're gonna be conditioned in some ways that are gonna work to sabotage them later on in life as they get older. But as they get older, they're not gonna be able to blame me for all of their problems. That, that wouldn't be right, it wouldn't be true. And in the same way, on one hand, we're victims of the fall and we're living in a sinful world. But on the other hand, you and I make choices to respond in certain ways that often bring further hurt and pain and bondage. This is where Jonah finds himself suffering the consequences of very intentional choices that he made. And we know what it's like to suffer the consequences of our choices, to suffer the shame that comes with sexual failure, or to suffer the experience, uh, to suffer and experience the divide that comes between us and our spouse when we lose control of our anger or to feel the guilt and the weight of words we wish we had never said and could take back, or things that we wish we could take back and have ruined our relationships and reputations. It's also important to recognize from our passage, though, that God chooses to use Jonah's disobedience and defiance for his ultimate good. It's in Jonah's failures and poor choices that God is able to most intentionally and powerfully work in his life. Notice how Jonah narrates this scene in verse 17. God is all over the place, by the way. I think there's 44 verses in the book of Jonah and 38 times, 38 verses, God is mentioned. I believe it might be 38 times. You can go and fact check me and we can talk next week maybe. But notice where God is all over the pages of this short verse. In verse 17, he says that God appointed a fish. In verse 10, Jonah says that the Lord commanded the fish to vomit Jonah out. Notice what Jonah says in verse three. It was the sailors who threw him into the ocean. But when he's speaking to God, he says, you cast me into the deep. It wasn't the sailors who primarily cast Jonah overboard. It was God who purposed it to happen. And so what we see is God placing Jonah in a position where he's suffering the consequences of his decisions. And this is what the Bible calls discipline. Discipline. And it's a huge grace. When you experience the discipline of God, it is a huge grace, even though it doesn't feel like it at the time. This is how the author of Hebrews says it in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. In discipline, God is treating you as sons and daughters. And he picks up the author of Hebrews and says this, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is what Jonah is experiencing at God's hand. It's a severe mercy from God. And if we don't experience discipline, that's a really scary place because it means that God has given us up over to our desires and to our choices like he does does with those that we heard about this morning from Romans 1. He just hands them over to their desires. Experiencing no discipline from God is a scary place to be. So Jonah is experiencing the consequences of his sin where God is intentionally and powerfully meeting him through discipline. And from Jonah's perspective, though, it couldn't be worse. I mean, Jonah says that the bars are closing in upon him, which is likely him looking at the, the ribs of the whale. The deep surrounded me, he said. The weeds wrapped around my head. And when we experience God's discipline in our lives, it's comforting to remember that God knows more about what we need than we do ourselves. God has a higher and better vision for you than you have for yourself. He's got a vision for who you can be. He has a vision for who you will be, and he's not gonna let that vision go, although we oftentimes do. And so what he does is he brings discipline into our lives so that we might be crafted and formed more into this image That he has of us. What we see from our passage is in the midst of this, as Jonah is experiencing discipline, hope begins to rise. The turnaround for Jonah comes when he owns his choices. Step one towards freedom and wholeness is taking ownership of the consequences of your own choices. It's an important gospel step as we follow Jesus in life. In the beginning, we see that Jonah wanted out of God's presence and now he wants nothing more than to be back in God's presence to look on the temple again, he says, where an offering of atonement could be made for the sin that got him into this mess in the first place. In verse 7, we see that when Jonah's life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. And it reminds us that normally it's when our life is fainting away, or at least when we feel like it is, it's then we remember and come back to Jesus. It's what Jonah does, and it begins to answer our next question. How do I get out of here? After the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, after Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, you see in verse 1 that Jonah began to pray. And this is the first time we see Jonah, the religious professional, praying in the book of Jonah. He doesn't do it when he should have been doing it all throughout chapter 1. It's now that he's hit rock bottom that he calls out to the Lord in his distress. He turns his attention back to God and verse 8 says, he focuses his attention on the hope of God's steadfast love. It's a key verse in this passage. When Jonah focuses on God's steadfast love, in Hebrew, steadfast love is just one word. It's the word hesed. And it's a very special and important word in the Old Testament. Jonah is being drawn back as he thanks upon God's steadfast love, God's loyal love, God's long-term love, God's constant love. It's a word that highlights God's covenant love, the love that is there for you even when your love is not there for him. That's what this word means. And you won't find that love anywhere else. Certainly not in idols, as Jonah says. We're looking for that love everywhere. Beauty, affirmation, material possessions. Those things always leave us empty because it can only be found in God. And it's this kind of love, as you think about it, that drew the prodigal son back in Luke chapter 15. And as he was drawn back by this love, awaiting him was not his judge, but his father. His loving father, it's important to recognize that the thing that wins Jonah back is not law. It's a consciousness of God's steadfast love. Love so amazing, so divine, that it demands our all. It wasn't remembering the Ten Commandments and resolving to follow them more closely that draws Jonah back. It's remembering God's love and grace. When you're at the bottom, trying harder will never fix your life, but remembering God's steadfast love can. And as we remember God's steadfast love, it moves us to confession and repentance, just like it did Jonah. Freedom, hope, and healing come as a result of confession and repentance. It's a bit scary at first because we're not sure how God is going to respond when we confess. We think it's oftentimes a prelude to condemnation, but what we find time and time throughout the Bible is that our confession is a prelude to God's healing in our life, a prelude to his forgiveness. We see from Jonah that our confession actually draws out compassion from God. There's a website, I've mentioned it before, called postsecrets.com. It was started by Frank Warren back in 2004, and he created the site to, quote, artistically share your deepest secret. And people will write their secrets, they'll write their confessions on a postcard, and they'll mail them to Frank in Colorado anonymously. You can find the address on his website. And to date, he has received over half a million postcards. Most of these cards are confession. People are desperate to share their confession with another person. It's because when you hold on to those confessions, they eat away at your soul. But when you share those confessions with another person, when you share those confessions with God, it's scary. But deep within, there's this wild, crazy hope that maybe, just maybe someone would love you even after knowing the real you. Here are a few confessions that Frank's received over the years. I always say that I don't believe in God. No one knows that I pray to him every night. Dear God, don't let me die alone. Another person writes, when my friends go on diets, I discourage them. This is because I really just want them to be fatter than me. It's okay to laugh. Another person writes, I use a bracelet of Jesus to hide my cutting scars. Another person simply wrote on a postcard, I am lost. Here's a letter that was sent to Frank. It reads like this. I've made six postcards, all with secrets that I was afraid to tell the one person I tell everything to, my boyfriend. This morning I had planned to mail them, but instead I left them on the pillow next to his head while he was sleeping. I thought I would never see him again. Ten minutes ago, he arrived at my office and asked me to marry him. I said yes. Confession is attractive to God. Did you know that your confession actually draws grace out of the one to whom you confess? Didn't you feel it even when you heard those post-secret cards, mercy and compassion and grace and love welling up within you? Didn't you want to just hug them and say, it's okay, you're not lost. That is Jesus rising up in you. God responds to confession and repentance with grace and restoration. Repentance is turning from sin, those things that promise to bring life but actually bring death, and turning to God, the only one who can bring true life. We get out of the belly of sin. We step free from bondage. We're able to walk out of darkness when we recognize our situation, when we take responsibility for our actions, when we cry out to God, and when we focus on His steadfast love. This is what Jonah does. He begins to find God's love more attractive than disobedience and sin because this is what discipline did to him. Now, you might be asking, what could have led Jonah to such a realization where he now delights in God's presence instead of fleeing from God's presence where we just saw him in chapter one? Well, Jonah begins to realize through a severe mercy that God is more attractive than anything this world has to offer. And we do well to follow in his realization. When that happens, we'll slowly find ourselves less attracted to sin and more attracted to the life that God brings. It's what the great Puritan Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. It's what Jonah experienced, and I experienced this too back in college. Told some of you this story, but when I was in college during my third year, I lived with four other guys in an amazing house. It was right next to Neyland Stadium in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was great. We had the best cookouts before football games, lots of fun with one another, spending time hanging out with each other on the porch, tailgating, going to games, spending time over meals with one another, great Christian friends that I had there in college. And then something happened. Started dating a girl named Rachel that year. She lived and attended school in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which was about a two-hour drive from Knoxville, which is a dangerous distance because you could get there in two hours. And as my junior year progressed, my friends began to see less and less of me, and Rachel was starting to see more and more of me. I was much more excited about spending time, as you might imagine, with Rachel than I was spending time with my friends. They kind of took a backseat in comparison to her. Time with her was more attractive than time with my four-guy roommates, no matter how cool they were. I was experiencing in that moment the expulsive power of a new affection. Rachel, my new affection, was replacing my old affection. I found time with her more enjoyable, more life-giving, more fulfilling than time with my old friends. And that's where Jonah finds himself in some ways at the end of this passage. God's love and his steadfast mercy is more attractive and appealing than the life he used to lead. This is where you and I are intended to be as well. What might it look like in our lives if our affection for Christ began to grow and grow to such an extent that it began to push out all the other ways of life, where the fleeting pleasures of sin lose their luster, so to speak? When we begin to find Christ more enjoyable, more life-giving, more fulfilling than sin, we'll begin to experience what Jonah highlights in verse 9. It says, a voice of thanksgiving that obeys God out of delight, because we have come to realize that salvation belongs to him alone. Jonah, when he's sitting in the belly of the whale, must have been left wondering, what did I do? And then he works his way to finally exclaiming that salvation belongs to the Lord. And Edmund Clowney, a professor at Westminster Seminary, once said that these are five words that summarize the entirety of the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah comes to realize that there's no solution for sin apart from God. Buddha does not save. Muhammad does not save. Your good works don't save. Yahweh saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Some of you will know that the name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. As we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus, who was the greater Jonah, he identifies himself that way, was one who found himself in the belly of the earth for three days, surrounded by Sheol, darkness, darkness. He was one who went down, down, down on our behalf, tasting hell for you and me. Something much more serious than what Jonah experienced here in chapter 2. And he did it so that we wouldn't get what our actions deserve. What's more, he gives us what he deserves, a gift, because salvation belongs to God. Yahweh saves. And we only have hope of replacing old affections with a new one when this new affection becomes more attractive. So what could make the love of God more attractive than the fleeting pleasures of sin? I believe you'll find Christ more attractive as we come to understand more deeply his unconditional love for you. And I wish I could say this every week, but you would get tired of it likely. Jesus knows everything there is to know about you. He knows the beautiful and the perverse. Jesus knows you in all of your dignity and all of your fragmentation. He knows everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought. And you would expect someone who knows you that way to turn around and run the opposite direction as fast as they possibly could. But Jesus does the exact opposite. He is so eager to forgive you that he runs towards you in mercy and grace. He knows everything about you and he loves you anyway. He becomes uncovered and exposed so that you might be covered. And that kind of love is attractive enough to keep us close to God without any threat of coercion, without much discipline at all. It's the love that we receive from God when we confess. It's the love that can keep you from darkness and death and give you deep well-being. It's that love that can change and transform your life. And it's that love that's on offer this morning to anyone who would confess and turn back to God because we have a God who will not let you go unpursued. And that is such good news for us this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love towards us. We thank you for the fact that you know us in all of our dignity and all of our depravity. And instead of turning and running away from us, you turn and run towards us in grace and in love. And we pray this morning that as we come to understand and believe that more deeply, that you would change us from the inside out, that we would long to be close to you Lord Jesus, we pray that you would draw us close, that you would continue to pursue us with that love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.